Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. I'm going to be talking today with Jim Lawler, who spent 25 years working undercover in the CIA's clandestine operations directorate retiring in 2005 as a highly decorated member of its senior intelligence service. Since then, he's been talking and writing a lot about the psychological dynamics and moral considerations involved in recruiting foreigners to commit treason against their governments. Here's part of what he said. You know, you're doing this for the United States, but you do sometimes lose a bit of your soul in doing it. I actually have a talk I give called Soul Catcher, and that's where I, I talk about basically owning somebody. You know, I mean, I was out there and I confess it felt good to be able to basically own someone, to, to uh, manipulate them, to have them do what you wanted them to do, something that they might not otherwise do. It, it was an incredible rush. That's former CIA officer Jim Lawler, who, by the way, ran the op that took down the notorious AQ Khan nuclear smuggling gang. I'll get back to his fascinating insights about the spy game later in the show. The Republican National Committee is now characterizing the storming of the Capitol as legitimate political discourse. And it has censured two Republican members of Congress, Senator Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, for participating in the January 6th House investigation. On CNN, Kinzinger was asked what he'd tell his newborn son about these times when he's grown. Kinzinger did not hold back. I'm going to tell him he was the worst president the United States of America ever had. He was a liar. He was a charlatan. And he was a man with a more fragile ego, ego than anybody I've ever met, which the irony of it is he walks around like the tough guy, but he's the one that gets more offended and wounded and sad than anybody I know. I'm also going to tell him that it was the moment that I hope America hit the bottom of you know, its slide towards authoritarianism and the moment we woke up. Uh, I hope he's proud of what I've done. I'm, I'm confident he will be because, you know, short of uh, this thing really going off the rails, this thing being our country in this experiment, I think we're going to look back and say, wow, that was a moment we might have flown too close to the sun and we can never do that again. Meanwhile, the investigation continues. Although hundreds upon hundreds of individuals have been arrested and charged for their actions at the Capitol on January 6th, there is one major unsolved mystery. Who placed the pipe bombs outside Republican and Democratic National Committee headquarters the night before? More than a year has passed, and I asked Colin Clark, director of research at the Sufon Group, whether he thought the case would ever be solved. I hope so. I, I think, you know, given there are images of the individual, description of his clothes, um, you know, his, uh, his gait, there's all sorts of different descriptions. Um, of, of this person. So, I, you know, I'm an optimist. I, I, I hope that there will be. And, you know, when you look at body shape, clothing, including the sneakers, mannerisms, all those things, 
you know, there could be someone out there. I think back to the Unabomber and, and, you know, how people thought he would never be caught. And then, uh, especially in the manner he was. So, yeah, I hope so. It's a year is a long time without many leads, but the other way of looking at it is it's only a year. Yeah, it was 17 for the Unabomber, as I recall. Exactly. Um, so do you think it's possible that the FBI knows more than they're telling us and they already have somebody who they're watching? Um, it's, it's possible. Sure. They, they, they could. Um, and, and kind of, you know, this is that whole concept of Intel gain loss. Um, when you actually make an arrest, do you then kind of eliminate sources of intelligence you are gleaning from monitoring the suspect and the suspect's network, you know, probing the network, seeing what happens going for, you know, bigger fish. So, uh, yeah, that would be great. I hope so. Um, but you know, again, because there's been little progress, it's hard to say. So you mentioned the camera footage, and there was a lot of it. This was Capitol Hill. The place is studded yeah. with security cameras. Exactly. They were able to identify his shoes as Nike Air Max Speed Turf sneakers. Are you surprised? I'm an Air Max wearer myself. Just are you really? Oh, yeah. So are you surprised that this bomber, he or she, right. um, was careful enough to wear a hoodie and gloves in addition to their mask? Um, was bold enough to wear a branded seeker or was it bold? Was it just stupid? You know, that could be all part of the plot of someone, you know, that, that stole those sneakers and wore them once and never intended to wear them again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, clearly this is a, a pretty nefarious individual who was targeting both the RNC and the DNC. Uh, really interesting when you think about what ideology could motivate that. I mean, for me, it's, it's the accelerationist stream of, of, uh, you know, violent extremism, where it's a desire to just destroy all government. And so it's hard to say, you know, what, where this individual belongs, if it's, you know, he or she's part of a, a group, a broader network, or as a so-called lone wolf, even though I'm not a big fan of that term. Do you think they were connected to those who were causing the commotion on Capitol Hill? Could have been, you know, it's all speculation, or this could have been the perfect moment to kind of, you know, blend in within the chaos. There were so many other things going on, and this certainly would have added to the chaos. Um, this, this definitely would have added to the chaos. You also mentioned gate analysis. How useful is that? Well, if someone's got a pretty unique gate, it could be. It's all about what's that characteristic that someone recognizes and says, huh, Given all these other things I know about this individual, that, you know, and, and things that they've said, or, you know, all these different clues that, that lead you to say, wait a minute, that is a pretty unique walk. It kind of looks like Steve. Steve's always saying how much he hates the government. Maybe it could be him, right? You never know. And so it's, I'm a big believer in if you see something, say something. I mean, the, uh, or if you think about, there's a, a sociologist, you know, uh, I think his name is Mark Granovetter, the strength of weak ties. Sometimes it's the, you know, not your network, but your network's network. It's that second, third person removed that ultimately ends up figuring out and providing a crucial detail that helps you crack the case. So would it be hard, getting back to the gate for just a moment, for someone to disguise the way they walk? I don't, you know, that's certainly if, if someone had this well thought out and, you know, we, we just talked about the sneakers before. Yeah, that, that could be something that seems like another level of detail. This seems like a pretty, you know, meticulous individual to go and do all this and to leave very little trace. And so I wouldn't put anything past somebody who's determined not to get caught. 
So amateur sleuths have estimated this guy's shoe size. Um, okay. I presume that probably agencies have figured out how tall he or she is as sure. well, correct? Yeah. So they have some sense of physical description here. Yeah, and there's a lot that we can do these days with different technologies to to figure in. I mean, I've worked with people that are voice experts that have helped the the government, including the FBI, when people call in with uh, you know bomb threats, and they say, you know, this technology can determine this person is sitting in a room this size, they're a smoker, they're likely age rate. It, it's fascinating what can be done with technology. We we often talk about technological advantages for the bad guys, but there's a lot that the good guys enjoy as well. The FBI released a map tracing the bombers' movements. He or she took a sort of meandering route. What do you draw from that? It could just be as simple as for anyone that's read a spy novel doing surveillance detection routes, right, of trying to make sure that they're not being followed. Um, who knows who this individual was communicating with prior to the attack, if they were a true lone wolf or lone actor or part of a broader network or ecosystem. And we know that a lot of the people present at the January 6th insurrection were pretty sloppy with their communications. That's all coming out now when you look at text messages between Oath Keepers and others. Presumably, everybody who has been picked up in connection with what was happening on Capitol Hill has been quizzed about the bomber, correct? I would imagine, and, and, and then some. Um, and, you know, that's likely to generate some leads because this person was down there. You know, it could have been someone that was, uh, there was a lot of people down there that didn't enter the Capitol that were tailgating. It was a big event. Um, and somebody kind of snuck off to do their own thing, um, almost hiding in plain sight as kind of part of the broader uh, throngs of, of people that went down there. The bombs did not explode. We know that they consisted of galvanized steel pipe, kitchen timers, and homemade gunpowder. Are those components so generic that they would not be useful to an investigation? I, you know, that's a good question. I've thought a lot about that myself. Um, the FBI and, and ATF and others likely look at so many different types of these. Um, and in terms of what we know, you know, eight-inch pipe bombs, as you mentioned, filled with gunpowder and set with egg timers, it seems pretty standard. So in terms of when you look for signatures, I'm not sure it offers much, but again, there could be other pieces of data that we're unaware of related to other investigations. Um, it's unlikely that, you know, if this was the person's first rodeo, um, you know, that it'll be their last. And it also may not have been their first, um, but given the fact that the bombs didn't explode, thank God, you know, maybe this is someone that's, that's you know, a, a bit of a novice or a neophyte. Talk to me a little about homemade gunpowder. How hard is it to make? Does it include ingredients that might be traceable? Yeah, we live in a country now where uh, obviously everybody has access to guns. Um, there are people that can get, uh, you know, if you go on Amazon, there was a case of Ahmed Romani years ago in Chelsea, New York, uh, who put together a couple of bombs. It's not out of the question that people can get these components and, and put them together. Uh, we've seen that before. I'm thinking back to um, Oklahoma City and fertilizer bombs and, and how they then began tracking um, certain kinds of fertilizer and so forth in order to right. facilitate investigations. There's nothing like that in, that might be helpful in a, an investigation of gunpowder. And there's different things now with like Amazon, right? Algorithms that say this person bought these things together and that, and that flags. Um, you know, for a while, the FBI was doing trainings at 
rental car places when we were studying vehicle tech. So yeah, I think it's specialized enough where there will be a handful of experts that know what they're looking for specifically. Um, I'm not a gunpowder expert and I would never pass myself off as one. So I'll leave that to the professionals, but certainly food for thought there. So we know they're looking at surveillance video and they have a fair amount of that. What are the other sorts of things they might be looking at? Cell phone data, license plate readers, satellite imagery. Give me give me the landscape of what they Yeah, I think doing. any possible piece of data they could get their hands on, certainly cell phone, uh, certainly uh, license plates or easy pass records. Um, you know, it all depends on what type of data they have now because you want to have a complement, right? You want to collect as many different sources, you know, what we would call human intelligence interviews with people that were there that may, you know, know who this person is. If there's been previous attempts like this, pulsing those networks to see what people know. Um, so there, there's a lot, you know, again, any little piece of, of data or evidence could break this case. And so um, that, that's why I don't think uh, you know, we shouldn't ignore anything. We should we should chase down every lead. And I think that's being done. So they're offering at last report, I think $100,000 reward for uh, information that would lead to this individual. Um, it hasn't worked yet. Do you think in the end that might? Yeah, again, it, it all depends on if this is someone that's part of a broader network or if this is, you know, with Ted Kaczynski, that was kind of moot because he was acting alone. And I think too often we overuse the term lone actor or, or lone wolf. Very often these people are part of broader networks or come from you know broader ecosystems. Um, but that all depends. You know, is this a tried and true member of the the three percenters? The you know, is this a, someone that's part of a, a white supremacist group? We we don't know. And if they are part of a group, that makes them more vulnerable because not only are they at the mercy of their other group members, but they're potentially at the mercy of undercovers. We know that. The FBI has been great at under, you know, at infiltrating um, particularly far-right extremist groups with undercovers. So the Unabomber was given up by his brother. It was right. another individual who turned him in. Do you truly think in your heart that it's going to be human intelligence in the end that's going to turn up this individual? Hard to say, really, because, you know, we live in uh, an era now where people are so, so polarized. And so, you know, I listened to some of the people that have been involved in QAnon and their family does want to help and they do anything to help them. This is different because if you know, if you drop a dime on this person, they're, they're going to jail for a long time, maybe the rest of their life. Uh, you know, so it, it's different, but it all depends on what the motivation is. If you think someone's out there and you know who it, who it is and they're likely to hurt someone, even if you, you know, have a soft spot. Yeah, I think there's all sorts of different motivations. Could be the reward money. Uh, but but if I had to if I had to bet on it, I would say that it's it's less likely to come through information provided by individuals and more from, you know, old fashioned uh, detective work. What's the likelihood, do you think, that this individual will strike again? I think it's high. I don't think this is something that you do once and never do again. I think certainly this individual could be emboldened because they got away with it. Now, the bombs didn't go off, and that could be another motivator, that they want to you know, finish the job and, and make sure that um, you know, this wasn't a one-off event that was a dud. So I think the, the, the odds are better than not that this person attempts to strike again. It could be six months from now. It could be two years from now. And, and if this is someone that's motivated by accelerationism, 
of attacking government targets, again, it wasn't one side or the other, um, then it's very likely that this person is going to attempt to strike again and is probably going to pick another target related to the federal government. You know, how many people are out there in the, in the woodwork that are, want to do the same thing? Attacks have been down, but they've been artificially suppressed by COVID because there, there's fewer soft targets when everybody's at home and inside. When we do start opening back up and going back to life as normal, farmers markets, baseball games, outside concerts, there's a plethora of, of soft targets that present themselves, you know, layered on top of the fact that people have been in their homes for the past two years, you know, uh, mental health issues have skyrocketed one of the top purchases in our country has been weapons and ammunition. So people are anxious, they're well-armed, and they're angry. And that's that's really a, it's a volatile combination. That was Colin Clark, Director of Research at the Sufon Group. Fascinating, Gene. You know, one of the things I learned from the interview, uh, from your question in the interview, was that the individual, the suspect, wandered around quite a bit uh, before placing the bomb as if it was a professional person following what's called a surveillance detection route uh, and that there might have been other people involved as a lookout team. Um, anyway, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, because the popular interpretation of that was that this person was just lost. They didn't know where they were going and it indicated that they were from out of town. So he had a very different spin on what that might have meant. One last question about that. He seemed to assume that this was a male is that your assumption as well? No, no. A couple of times said, I said he or she, and, and he did agree that it could be someone of either gender. Okay. We have a lot more Spy Talk coming up. A reminder to subscribe to our podcast. Also subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. A lot of great content there. Follow us on Twitter. Jeff's at Spy Talker. I'm at Gene Meserve. And in just a moment, Jeff's interview with a former CIA case officer who will give us the nuts and bolts of how it's done. Astute listeners and espionage aficionados will recognize that as the theme music from The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, the classic John le Carre thriller that was turned into a hit movie starring Richard Burton in 1963. Old it is, but it's still available on Amazon Prime. It's an uncommonly dark portrait of the spy game with Burton as British intelligence agent Alex Lemus famously saying the service wasn't filled with heroes, but, quote, a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. And worse, former CIA officer Jim Lawler has given a lot of thought to the darker side of the business in a recent novel and in talks he gives under the subject heading Soul Catcher. We talked last week. Jim Lawler, welcome to Spy Talk. It's just great to have you here. I'd like to talk a little bit about what a spy really means. You spent some 20 plus, 25 years working in the shadows, as we say. Um, uh, and, and people would, would typically call you a, a spy. And I've noticed that even uh, veteran intelligence officers even have accepted that definition, that popular use of the term. But it's not really accurate, is it? In most cases, you're not really a spy. You're what's called a case officer, also known as an agent handler. 
um, and you go out to recruit spies. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit and, and how that whole system works. Take people inside the process of spying. Okay, Jeff, and you're correct. Uh, people frequently talk about CIA case officers as being spies, but in fact, 99.9% .9 of the time, we are spy recruiters. We recruit sources, covert sources, to provide classified or protected or privileged information to policymakers back here in the United States. In many respects, we're a bit like journalists. We have covert sources, and we have a very circumscribed readership. So uh, you're right. And, and the thing that I guess the reason I was, I think, fairly good at this was the uh, fact that I am a very empathetic person. I like to listen to people. I, I rarely ever had to protect my cover, mainly because most people really like to talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, they and myself, we had a coincidence of interest there. I was interested in them and they were interested in themselves. Mm -hmm. And very rarely did I ever have to defend my cover. I, I mean, I just didn't have to. Okay. I think I might have been blessed with a, uh, the ability to perceive stress in people because essentially what you're doing when you're recruiting a clandestine source is you're convincing that person to uh, usually to commit treason, to become a traitor. And that's a very harsh word. I didn't know that's what they expected me to do when I joined the agency. I was basically escaping from a family business in Texas where I was making a lot of money, but very unhappy and unsatisfied. And I had no idea what the CIA wanted me to do as a case officer until I arrived here in February of 1980. And over the next few weeks, it suddenly dawned on me. They wanted me to manipulate people, to exploit people to subvert people, to suborn people, to persuade them to commit treason. So that's a, that's a big difference between being an uh, investigative reporter and being a case officer looking for people to commit treason. So let's step back a little bit. How do you find someone who's going to commit uh, treason? There's a, a term we use in the espionage business called spotting. Tell us, tell us what that means. So I'll give you an example. Spotting is somebody at CIA headquarters or at your headquarters has tasked you to develop a source that has access to, say, some very privileged or circumscribed confidential information. And how do and, they find that person? Well, when we were when I was first doing this overseas, basically we had to do it ourselves. Nowadays, we have what we call targeting officers. And targeting officers, if I can give you an example, they might look at the Iranian nuclear weapons program and they would probably construct a uh, wiring diagram showing, OK, here's where the scientists are. Here's the ones we know about, the ones that go to conferences, the ones who've published maybe some papers in the past and have certain special skills. I mean, you can imagine people who have skills in metallurgy, people who have skills in nuclear physics people who have skills in health physics, all of those people, and a fair amount of them have either studied abroad or come out of Iran. And we've been able to uh, develop uh, databases on what these people's skills are. And then we have sources that say, okay, look for Dr. Ali. He's in this particular program. He does this or that. 
And we look for them outside of their very controlled environments. Oh, absolutely. Ideally, for example, Dr. Ali is going to be attending a conference in Paris. And that goes for Russians and Chinese as well. Absolutely. They travel to the United States, they travel to other countries, and that's where you sidle up to them and start engaging in conversation and try to assess them. Right. I mean, so you're assessing, first off, do they have access? If they don't have access, why should I be interested in them? And secondly, you're assessing them for vulnerabilities. Uh, you assess them maybe for their attitude towards the United States. You assess them for, do I have something that I can engage this person in to learn more about them, to find out what is it that makes this person tick? What is it, you know, I, I like to say that in my youth, I was a rock climber and there's only one way you can climb a rock and that's you look for the crack systems <laughs> and you can't, you can't decide what the crack systems are, where you're going to put your fingers and your toes, unless you get very close to the rock and you study it. And people are just like that. And you're looking for a weakness as well. Somebody drinks, drinks too much. Everybody has a crack system. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Now, you are a legend for running the team that took down the uh, Pakistani nuclear scientists who spread nuclear know-how around the world, uh, AQ Khan. Was that how you approached that target, trying to get inside his network? No, not really. It was a, a different... Um... A different philosophy. Uh, you uh, have been in the intelligence world a long time, Jeff, so you probably are familiar with the name of a man, uh, Felix Zerzhinsky. Mm -hmm. yeah, Felix Zerzhinsky was the uh, Soviet, the Bolshevik who founded the Czech. The founder of modern Soviet intelligence. Absolutely. Uh, what you may not know is he wasn't even a Russian. He was a Polish aristocrat, but a Bolshevik and very talented. And so he was confronted early in his career as the head of the Soviet intelligence uh, organization, the Cheka, with all of the counter-revolutionaries that were being fed into the Soviet Union, being financed by Britain and by the United States. And he came up with this fabulous idea. He said, if I want to defeat the counter-revolutionaries, I have to become one. Mm -hmm. And so taking a page out of his book, I mean, and, and literally he fanned his Czechist agents out across the Soviet Union pretending to be counter-revolutionaries. And by doing that, he discovered who the real counter-revolutionaries were, where their supply lines were, where their financing lines were. They had such complete control over this. They absolutely, they controlled the bank through which all the money went. Mm -hmm. So they followed the money and then they systematically annihilated these counter-revolutionaries. So I use the same philosophy. If I want to defeat proliferators, I've got to become a proliferator. So I established a business overseas where I specialized in certain types of equipment that we knew that proliferant programs had to have. It's what's known as a choke point technology. By that, I mean something that a proliferant country absolutely has to have to produce a nuclear weapon. And it's in short supply and they, don't, they can't produce it indigenously. And if you look at a program with that type of uh, a sieve sieving through everything, you can reduce the choke points down to about maybe a dozen different things. And then you can afford to focus on that. So if I set up a company and I specialized in certain needed technologies, 
guess what? I'm going to attract. I'm going to attract the people that are interested in this. So you and build so, a better mousetrap. Uh, AQCon had to come to you to get certain uh, materials for his uh, nuclear program. That's correct. And was that easy? Did they fall for it right away? Were they highly suspicious? Well, we, <laughs> we actually started with another nuclear program as a priority, but we were in, say, the right place. And that old, that mantra about build the field and the people will come. Well, we built the <laughs> field and we went to trade fairs in certain, shall I say, denied areas, saying that we could supply things. And we uh, located in a, in a location that was very friendly to our customers. You know, Sam Walton didn't become a billionaire by throwing a dart at a map and saying, that's where I want my next Walmart. No, he looked for the customers. Mm -hmm. you know, the intelligence community calls them targets. I call them customers. So yeah. I was... <laughs> <laughs> so this is a version of that old adage, to, be, to catch a terrorist, you have to become a terrorist. That's exactly right. You've got it. Now, let me ask you, going back to the movie version of Agents and, the, and real life, um, in the terrific French uh, espionage thriller called Le Bureau or The Bureau, there's uh, a series in which French intelligence sends uh, one of its officers to Tehran undercover, not diplomatic cover, working in a petroleum exploration office. Is that, that's not uh, something that's normal practice, is it? To send a CIA officer under unofficial cover into such a dangerous area. I won't say it's common, but I know people who've done it. Let me put it that way. In fact, I know several of them who've done it. These people are incredibly courageous because if they were caught, you can imagine what would happen. Uh, you know, we've had people under non-official cover that have been kept captive for years. Uh, the most famous ones were Downey and Fecto in the Korean War, and they were mm -hmm. kept for over 20 years in a Chinese prison. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not easy. Uh, but there's also a high risk factor there. It's not just the risk to their their person, to their bodies. It's a risk to the CIA, let's say. Uh, that they will give up really important information under interrogation. I, yeah, that's that's the risk that we have to take. I mean, these are these are high risk games. You know, as a military intelligence officer yourself, this is very high stakes that we play, and we get we attract a uh, dedicated core of Americans and people who we say are foreign documented people that you know. I, I open my mouth. And the whole Gulf Coast of Texas comes out. I can't pretend to be somebody, say, from another country. But we do have some employees who not only pretend, they are. They, they've come from other countries. And we're incredibly wealthy and, and fortunate in that we have these people who are so dedicated to the United States that, let, let me give you an example of this. We had one of these non-official cover officers. This was during the... Um, the uh, he had come to us as a product of a country in the East Bloc, and he got his American citizenship and he worked for us for many, many years. That whole time, he never set foot at Langley. And finally, when he was retiring, he came to Langley and he cried. He was so happy to, to be here and to support freedom. And we are fortunate as a nation that we have people like that.
He must have cried a little bit because he was happy to be alive. And I'm there sure was a big was. stress left down after his experience. Can you share with us uh, an experience that you had under a deep cover, un, uh, unofficial cover uh, operation in which you found yourself surrounded by very bad guys? And tell us what that what, what that was like. I was, uh, we, I mean, I had to serve under, occasionally we would do operations under commercial cover where I don't have, I don't pretend to be an American diplomat. You know, I don't have diplomatic protection. I uh, would be, you know, a business person. In one particular case, I was going after a, a, a target from a country with whom we have no diplomatic relations but who um, this country has incredible wealth in oil and gas. Well, being from Texas and being somewhat knowledgeable about the oil and gas business, I was able to pretend to be an oil and gas commodities trader. And so I would do that for extended periods of time and trying to engage this person in a commercial relationship, a consulting relationship, because if I had insights into what her country was doing in the oil and gas market, and especially in its participation in OPEC in Vienna, if I got a heads up on that, you know, were I really an oil and gas trader, then I would have an amazing amount of advantage in the oil and gas markets. So I was able to basically pitch this person to provide advanced information on what her country was doing in the oil and gas market. And yeah, we were interested in the oil and gas market, but that was just a ploy to get this person hooked into a commercial relationship. But if you ask me, have I been in a situation where my life was on the line? Uh, not knowledgeably, not like some of my colleagues. No, I, I haven't done that. I, I was never under non-official cover for extended periods of time, only short periods. And my hat is off to these people. I, can, I thought about becoming a, a knock officer when I came into the agency, but I'm very happy that I didn't because I like to, I like to chat with my colleagues, whereas the knock officer is out by themselves. They're at the pointy end of the spear, and the only time they can talk to somebody is maybe on periodic uh, trips back to the States or to a third country where they can meet a handler. Now, I became a knock handler. Uh, that's a person who actually meets a knock or runs a knock. Let's, let's stop just for a second and say a knock is a non-official cover. Non-official cover. Like I was under official cover, State Department cover. Some people are under military cover. But if you're a business person, then that's non-official cover. And you have no diplomatic protection. If you get caught, you go to jail. You don't get the get out of jail free card. And these people are incredibly courageous the agency has not always used them to the best extent. Uh, sometimes people think, well, you can just use a knock and anything. Well, no, a knock is like a precise surgical instrument. And you need to know how to use a knock, what the limitations are, and then uh, use them correctly. They can be, and I've known both male and female knocks, and some of them are just absolutely astounding what they can do and how brave they are. I've always thought that to be a really good case officer of any kind under official cover or non-official cover in particular, you had to have the nerves of a cat burglar. You've got to be really, really calm 
in situations of very, very high stress, like, for example, coming under suspicion by the hostile intelligence service that starts trailing you around, right? I think that's 100% correct. In fact, I'll give you a little psychological insight into me. One of my favorite uh, genre of books to read is about hitmen. Sometimes I felt like a hitman. I was going after somebody. I wasn't going to kill them, but I was going to recruit them. And I had to have an incredible focus, have to have agility. I had to be able to talk my way out of a problem. If I, you know, be able to be a quick thinker on your feet, not be frozen and, um, and know that, that this is absolutely something that the United States needs. And into psychologically, this is a righteous thing to do. You've talked a lot and written a lot about case officers sort of losing their soul uh, in this business. I, I want to quote you uh, from uh, I want to quote you from the classic uh, early 60s uh, John Le Carre novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, and in, in which uh, the British spy Alex Lemus snarls to his girlfriend about uh, her idealization of uh, the intelligence work. And he says, they're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me, little drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. You think they sit there like like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong? So I guess I'm not going to ask you if you're a squalid little guy yourself, but isn't there, there is kind of a uh, seeping yourself in this business. You do lose a little bit of your soul, don't you? Actually, I asked myself that very question in my novel that we can talk about in a little bit called Mm -hmm. living lies. And that theme is goes through it where it, you know, you're doing this for the United States but you do sometimes lose a bit of your soul in doing it. I actually have a talk I give called Soul Catcher. And that's where I, I talk about basically owning somebody. You know, I mean, I was out there and I confess it felt good to be able to basically own someone, to, to uh, manipulate them, to have them do what you wanted them to do, something that they might not otherwise do. It was an incredible rush. I've had people tell me, one, one source said, Jim, when I listen to you, it's like my brain is in a warm water bed. Mm. It makes it, it sounds like you become sort of a sociopath. Well, it, more than sort of. In fact, <laughs> somebody once said, Lawler, you're nothing but a sociopath, but one within lanes. Those lanes are U.S. laws. Yeah, you have yeah. to have a certain amount of sociopathy. Well, you may be uh, adhering to U.S. laws, and this is not an accusatory statement, of course, because I was a case officer myself. I put others' lives at risk, but that is the heart of the business, isn't it? It's recruiting someone, uh, manipulating them uh, through the classic uh, techniques of uh, exploiting their needs for money, their ideological drives, uh, their their uh, position of being compromised in uh, uh, their ego, exploiting all that to get them to risk their lives for you at CIA uh, while you sit at a certain distance safe. Um, and uh, that is really an, an egomaniacal kind of uh, a job, isn't it? 
It is, it is, but it's a rush when you control these people and when they deliver to you exactly what you need for the National Security Council or the President of the United States. I, but I confess, no, it is to a certain extent sociopathic. I was incredibly focused. When I was going after somebody, I kept after them. In one case, it took me 11 years to recruit a source. Mm. I'm sure that Iranian case officers, Russian case officers, Chinese case officers, they feel the same rush when they recruit an American or a European to spy for them. Um, but let's turn to your novel. Um, uh, you have a really interesting uh, plot line in it. It's called Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. And the plot line concerns the Iranians giving uh, compromises to sign a nuclear deal with the West, uh, but actually they've acquired a nuclear weapon elsewhere. Tell us a little bit about that. That's a great line. Well, I, I got this idea when we were uh, actually seeing the original Iran, you know, Iranian nuclear negotiations back in 2015, the uh, JCPOA, as it was called. And I speculated with a friend of mine. I said, but what if they cheat? In this case, in my novel, that's exactly what happens. The Iranians uh, come back to the table and they give up all of their uranium enrichment technology. You need for a nuclear weapon, you need either uranium, highly enriched uranium or plutonium. So they basically say, OK, we'll give up all of our enrichment technology. And the United States is delighted. The White House says, see, we're succeeding with the Iranians. But what they don't tell anybody what the secret, the nasty little secret is, they've acquired enough fissile material, highly enriched uranium from uh, former Soviet Union. And so they don't need an enrichment program. So they, they, they have basically put the covert nuclear weapons program elsewhere, and they've gotten the relaxation of sanctions from the United States. And it's, um, that, that was the thing that I, I, I hope that people are focusing on that, that, you know, they could, they could cheat on this, they could be developing a weapon, and we would never know it unless we have spies. And that's what my book is about, is about how we recruit three people inside the program and how they tell us the ugly truth that we're being, dece being deceived. And yet the White House and the director of central intelligence at the time, who's pandering to the White House, he says, no, you know, we've got sources that are basically telling us that this is really legitimate. There's no program left. Well, <laughs> they're well, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we have to ask, uh, did this spring entirely from your imagination? Mostly. <laughs> well, we don't want to give away the whole book, and I'm sure Spy Talk listeners really want to uh, visit it and, and uh, get it and read it. It's called A Living, Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. Jim Lawler, we have to bring it to an end. So great to have you on the show. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again and again over time. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jeff. That's Jim Lawler, the author of Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. And the guy who brought down A.Q. Khan. Wow, that a, was a huge case. A big deal, a very big deal. He's uh, considered really almost one of a kind out at CIA headquarters, and rightly so. And that's it for another episode of Spy Talk. A reminder, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack, and you should. A lot of great content there. Follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast as well. 
Thanks for joining us. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. See you here next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.